Good morning. Uh, you can tell I'm the middle school coordinator here at the Calvary Boulder campus. And a uh, couple things. Yeah, my name is Jake, if I haven't met you, so I would love to meet you after the service. Um, as I said, I work with the middle school students. And a couple things about that, because some of you guys don't always get to hear about what's going on in the middle school ministry. Um, I consider myself to have the best job in the world. I'm serious. I love middle schoolers. I think middle school is the best age there is. And middle schoolers have two things which make them super awesome. There's more than two, but I'm going to name two of them. One is that they are hilarious. Middle schoolers are hilarious. This is from the month of October. We're doing what's called Chalktober. And every single week in the middle school ministry, we're doing chocolate flavored games. And this was an ice cream eating contest. Joy Hanneman killing it up there with some whipped cream in her mouth. Middle schoolers love to have fun, and I love to have fun, and I love to have fun with them, and it's an amazing way that we just connect with one another. This is from our shaving cream war. This is probably the cleanest photo that came out of that shaving cream war, so it's pre-shaving cream. But they love to have fun, and I, and I think that can't be taken for granted, that they're an age who's still young enough where they're not too cool for fun. But beyond that, middle school is also the time for many where it's a crossroads in their faith. And they can choose to walk with the Lord or to walk away from the Lord. And I see that in middle schoolers, they are spiritually engaged very freshly, where they decide, man, is this just what my parents believe? Or am I going to start following Jesus and take, take up my own faith into my own hands? And they can be really, really serious. I, sent, I learn from them every single week after chaos. I reflect and I go, man, I heard things in small groups from middle schoolers that are just illuminating. And, and they're spiritually engaged and it's an important time to be able to speak into their lives and tell them about who Jesus is. I want to thank you as a church for supporting youth ministry. I also don't take that for granted because there's a lot of churches that, that don't support youth ministry or that don't do it strongly. And we do it well here. And it's because you guys are supportive of youth ministry. So thanks for caring about middle schoolers in that way. And just uh, for perspective, I've been in this job for a year and five months. I could tell you I've received a lot of training in the last year and five months. And I've needed a lot of training because when you're learning a new skill or a new trade or something that you don't know how to do, you need someone to teach you and to instruct you and to train you. Even the most mundane skills might require teachers. When I graduated high school, I, I uh, took a gap semester and moved to Charlotte, North Carolina. And for the first time in my life, I was responsible for cooking my own meals. And I've improved since then, but this gap semester, I decided I was going to make mac and cheese. Yes, that is considered cooking your own meal. And so I pulled out boxed mac and cheese and decided this has got to be easy enough where I don't need to think about the instructions. And so I took the noodles, poured them in and boiled them up and took them out. And I took this powdered cheese and was like, okay, just add this directly onto the noodles and that will make delicious mac and cheese. And what I ended up with, was very plain macaroni with clumps of powdered cheese in it. And it was a disappointing dinner. And the reason is because I didn't follow the instructions. I needed a teacher to teach me how to do something very, very simple, like make mac and cheese. And many and all skills and trades need teachers for us to learn how do I get good? How do I become like that person who knows how to do this thing? This morning in our text, which is in Luke chapter 11, if you'd like to turn there in your Bible, it's in the New Testament, Luke chapter 11, after Mark and before John, Jesus 
offers to be our teacher. He offers to be our teacher. And it's, he's going to teach us something way more important than making boxed mac and cheese. Jesus offers to be our teacher and one of the most important things that we can do in the Christian life. That's Luke chapter 11. Help your neighbor find it if they are struggling. Luke chapter 11, verse 1 says this. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. The gospel of Luke has the most instances recorded of Jesus praying out of all the other gospels. Jesus prays in the gospel of Luke during his baptism. It says while he's being baptized, he prays as he's being baptized. He prays all night long before choosing his disciples, has this 12-hour prayer session at night before choosing his disciples. He prays before his death. He's praying on the cross in Luke chapter 23. And numerous times, Luke records Jesus going to desolate places and praying by himself. And then it amounts to his disciples watching him pray. And they say to Jesus, Jesus, teach us to pray. A couple of things I find really interesting about that. One is that the 12 disciples are the embodiment of what it looks like to be a Christian in this world, right? We get to see them and learn from them. And there are men who knew exactly how they followed Jesus and walked with them and they were spiritual men. And yet they need a teacher to teach them how to pray. If you're in this room and you, you think prayer is hard or difficult, or you find yourself bored, or you don't know what to say when you pray, or you don't know how to handle prayer, you're not alone. You're actually among good company because even men who walked directly with Jesus struggled to pray and they needed a teacher to teach them how to pray. And you can imagine being in their footsteps and walking with Jesus and watching him pray and saying, look at that guy go. Like he's been on his knees for an hour praying intimately with the father. He must know how to do something that I don't. And so they ask him, John taught his disciples to pray. Jesus, can you teach us? And Jesus does. And he gives us two things, two things today that I think Jesus is going to teach us about prayer and then how to pray. The first one is how do we approach God in prayer? What does it look like for us to come to God? What is our disposition? What do we say? How do we approach God in prayer? And the second one, how does he respond to us? What does he do when we approach him in prayer? How does he respond to us? What does he say to us? How does he answer us? How do we approach God and how does he respond to us? And my big idea that, that I want you guys to walk away with today is pray to the father who gives. Pray to the father who gives. I think that answers both these questions and we'll see what that looks like in our text today. So if you look down at Luke chapter 11, verse two, it says this. And he, Jesus said to them, when you pray, say, father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Quick note on the Lord's Prayer before we get too deep into it. The Lord's Prayer, I, I use this phrase, I've used it with the middle school ministry. It's a recipe for our prayers. It's a recipe Jesus gives us for our prayers. That means is he gives us the ingredients and the order of, of our prayers and, and how to order our prayer lives and what to say and include in our prayers. But like a normal recipe, sometimes you might add a little extra salt and you might spend a little bit more time on one phrase of the Lord's Prayer, or you might pray just a portion of it. Or some days you might pray it word for word, and that's totally fine. Or you might take a phrase and then just be inspired and pray, Father, hallowed be your name. Let me expound upon this and what this looks like for my own life. It's a recipe for our prayers. And the first ingredient in the recipe 
And the entire theme of the Lord's Prayer, I think, is that we begin our prayer, we approach God as a loving father. We approach God as a loving father. When we come to him, we come to him as our loving father. And the first thing that means is that we remember who he is. That's what he's saying for us to do. And Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, is that we remember who we're praying to. We all have those friends in our lives, but when you come up to them and you, you have a conversation with them, you ask them one question, and then suddenly for the next 45 minutes, you listen. Right? We've got those friends in our lives, but you ask them how they're doing, and they generally don't end up responding, asking how you're doing as well. They just talk, right? And they list all the things that are going on in their life, all their struggles, all of their celebrations, and you get to listen. And you got to love them. You got to love those friends that you have that, that happen to talk about themselves a lot. But Jesus tells us that sometimes we can come to God that way, where when we approach him in prayer, the first thing we do is give him a list of our needs, or tell them what's going on in our lives. Or we say, God, I need this, this, and this today. I need this at work. It would help me if you were with me in this. But the first part of, of the Lord's Prayer that he gives us to remember is remember who you're praying to. And who is he? Our Father. He's our Father. And this is actually the best news I could tell you today, that the first part of the Lord's Prayer is Father, because it reshapes our entire identity to know that God is our Father and that that's who we get to pray to. What that means is that when you approach God, you're not approaching someone with his arms crossed, looking at you, shaking his head, thinking, oh, you again, you sinned yesterday. How could you come into my presence? You're not approaching someone in guilt. You're not approaching someone you have to appease or that you have to pay for something before you come to him. You're approaching your dad. You're approaching your father who wants to listen to you. What father, what, what good father does not want to hear what their children have to say? That is what God is is described as here by Jesus is that first and foremost, he's our father. And when we come to him, we're praying from our identity as his child, as his daughter, as his son. So when you come to God and you feel this, this sense of guilt or this, does he hear me? Does he care about what I have to say? The first thing you get to remember is God, you're my father. And I praise you for that. Sometimes when I'm praying this prayer, I just sit here. I just sit in the very first part of this prayer and think, man, This is the news I needed to hear today, this morning, is that God cares about me and I have an identity and he has not forgotten me and it won't change tomorrow. It won't change because of my sins of yesterday, this morning, he is our father. And as such, he's not just an ordinary father. He's our perfect father. He's not an earthly father who makes mistakes and who maybe isn't a good model of what a father should be. God is our perfect father who actually deserves honor and praise. And that's the second part. It says in verse two, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Hallowed means to honor. It means to set apart something. So if we're hallowing God's name, we're praying, Lord, your name be set apart in my life. Your name be set apart in the city of Boulder, in my job, in my friends' lives. Lord, would your name be praised? And the reason we get to pray this is because he deserves it that he's our father. And when we come into his presence, we look at him and we realize this is a God who is worthy of being honored. And this actually reorients our days because when I wake up, sometimes my inclination is to hallow my name. So wake up and go into the world and say, man, what can I do today? That's going to be fun for me. Or what can I do today to make today, today awesome for myself? But this reminds us, wait, what is the purpose of my life? I have a relationship with the father And my purpose is to bring him glory and honor. And I get to do that in my work. Lord, help me honor your name in my life. 
And following this is your kingdom come. When Jesus came, he brought about the kingdom of heaven. He says the kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And there's two different kingdoms in this world. There's the kingdom of the devil, the kingdom of evil, and the kingdom of heaven. And when Jesus came, he brought the kingdom of heaven on earth. But it's a now and not yet reality. So what this means is that Jesus came and he brought the kingdom now. That if you are a believer in Jesus, you're actually living in the kingdom of heaven. And you get to live your life in accordance to how God tells us to live our lives and how we get to be in his kingdom. And yet, there's still suffering here. There's still sin here. So much of the world doesn't know God and it doesn't desire to know God because the kingdom of the devil is still warring against the kingdom of heaven. And So when we pray this prayer, we get to say, Lord, make heaven on earth. Make your kingdom come and be inaugurated today. Make it look more and more like heaven here on earth in my life. Help me to be kingdom-minded and think about how can I follow you with my life today. Help my coworkers to get to know you and bring about your kingdom in their lives. So we get to pray and ask, Lord, your kingdom of perfect justice and perfect righteousness, make that what's true about the world today because we suffer and the kingdom of, devil, of the devil is threatening to us. But we get to look and say, the kingdom of God is greater, and it's here. Lord, bring your kingdom. You are able to do it. So we begin our prayer lives by remembering who is God. That's how we start to approach him. And then we get to ask him for things as our loving father. And, and I want to just lean into this for just a second, because I think sometimes as Christians, we can be hesitant to ask God for things. It feels like, man, do I just give him things? Like, does he listen? Does he want to hear from me and hear what's going on in my life? But Jesus includes in the Lord's prayer, things for us to ask from God. In other words, God asks us to ask him for things. So be relieved and feel freedom to ask God for things. And what do we first ask him for? Verse three, give us each day our daily bread. This is an invitation for us to ask God for what we need in our lives. What are the daily things that sustain us and the daily things that are going to help us live in this world, whether it's food or whether it's help financially, what can God give us that will help us live our lives? We ask people for things according to who they are. So we ask people for things according to who that person is. For example, I might ask a plumber to fix my sink. I'll ask her, hey, can you fix my sink? Because I know this is what you do for a living but I probably won't ask her to diagnose my lower back problems, right? I'm not going to ask her that because that's not who she is. That's not her occupation and what she's going to do. So I'll ask a plumber to fix my sink. I might also ask my grandmother to bake cookies with me because that's what grandmothers like to do. They bake cookies with you, but I'm not going to ask her to pace my next trail race because that would not be good for either of us. Although maybe some of you are grandmothers in this room and you could probably outpace me in a trail race. And if, if that's you, you should come talk to me. That'd be kind of fun. But we ask people for things according to who they are. The same is true of God. We ask God, God, will you provide for me today? Because he's our father. And what do good fathers do? Good fathers provide for their kids. They put food on the table. They give them what they need to live, clothes, shelter. That's what a good father does is they work hard to make sure that their family has what they need. And God is the perfect father. And so he loves it when we ask for him, ask for things that we need from him. So if you're in a situation right now where you're like stressed about the rising costs, 
or you're stressed about how you're going to put food on the table in the next year, or you're wondering, man, there's so much I need. I don't know how we're going to continue to live here. I don't know how, unless I get a raise, I don't know what I'm going to do to make it by. God invites us to bring those things to him. And he says that he actually invites us to ask for the things that we need in order to make it by in this world, that we can get provision from him. And he says, do not stress. You don't have to work harder to earn these things. Ask me, and I love to provide for you. He provides for us physically, and he also provides for us spiritually. Verse four, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. We ask God for him to provide for us physically, and then we ask for spiritual provision. And when you hear this, it might initially sound confusing to some of us who have grown up in the church where we say, well, we're saved and we're forgiven forever, and that's unconditional, and we're saved from the moment we put our faith in Jesus. So why ask him for forgiveness again and again? And I think what this is asking is that we would admit our daily need for his grace. And what this looks like is this. In high school, I went out and bought a Zippo lighter. I bought it because I wanted to do magic tricks with it, which is pretty much the nerdiest thing you could do with a Zippo lighter. So I bought a Zippo lighter for magic tricks. And for some reason, I was ashamed that I had bought it and did not want my parents to find out I had bought it. I just didn't want them to be suspicious. I don't remember why I didn't want to tell them, but I was nervous that they'd be mad at me for having bought a Zippo lighter. So I didn't tell them. And my dad walked in on me while I was doing some weird flourishing with it. Still probably couldn't do it today. And he said, Jake, where'd you get that Zippo lighter? I said, oh, my friend gave it to me. My friend gave me the Zippo lighter. He said, oh, that's, that's cool. It's really cool. So he wouldn't have even been mad at me if I told him I bought it. And in that moment, I started to get this pricking at my conscience where I was like, okay, I just lied to him. I need to confess that to him. I said, dad, I lied. I didn't get this from a friend. I bought it with my own money. And he forgave me. And in that moment, what was going through my mind was not if I tell my dad that I lied to him, he might kick me out of the house forever and never talk to me again. That wasn't my thought, right? I knew that that sin was not enough for my dad to disown me or to no longer love me. But what I wanted was for there not to be any walls between us. I wanted to openly walk before my dad and be able to come to him without thinking that there's something that is between us that he doesn't know about in my life. I wanted to be completely open with the things going on in my life because I loved my dad and I wanted, and I wanted to understand that before him. And so when we come to God and we ask him for our forgiveness, we're not asking because we don't know what the answer is going to be. We're asking because we know the answer is yes. Every time we come and we, we pray for things in our lives, we admit our daily need for his grace, and we know the answer is yes. Not only does he provide forgiveness for us, but he also keeps us from further sin. Verse 4, and lead us not into temptation. You want to know how to make a dad angry? Bully his child. That's how you make a dad angry. That's how you make a mother angry is that you bully their child. And the same goes with our dad. If you, this prayer is asking God, protect us from those things which would steal our joy. Lead us not into temptation. Keep us from sin in our lives because what sin does is it destroys our lives. Sin actually takes away the things that we get to rejoice in. It takes away the joy that God has given us. And it, it, it tells us lies. It deceives us into believing that we can gain things gain joy from things that will never actually give us the joy that they promise. 
So when we ask God, lead us not into temptation, we're asking God, protect us from those things that would corrupt us. Protect us from those things that would make our lives harder. And he will. When I pray this prayer, I oftentimes pray for very specific instances in my life where I say, Lord, I'm going to have this conversation with this person today. Would you give me patience during that conversation so that I would not sin or be angry against them? Lord, at work, we're having this meeting. and I think it might be, uh, I probably won't pray this. I work at the church. But maybe you're at work and you're praying and you're saying, Lord, th- there's, there's a meeting today. And I think that they're going to ask us to do things that I can't do. Would you help me to resist that? I pray for specific instances and say, Lord, keep me from temptation in these areas because I want to walk before you without sin. And so we approach God as our father. We approach him as a father who cares about us. And that's fundamental to when we come to him to pray is that we understand this is a God who hears me and he cares to hear my prayers. But what we need to know next is how does he respond to us when we come to him that way? What is his response to us when we approach him as a father? Well, the ultimate response, I think, is that he responds to us as a loving father. That we approach to him as a father, and then he responds to us as a perfect father would. And here's what that means. First, Jesus gives us an illustration of what that doesn't look like. Verse 5. And he said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. I read this initially and I'm slightly confused. And then I think about putting myself in that scenario. I'm in bed at home. It's 12 a.m. And I get a knock on my door. I'm groggy and first of all alarmed because it's 12 and uh, getting a knock on my door and I walk downstairs I open the door and it's you and you're standing there and you say Jake can I have some bread 12 a.m what would my response be to you go to Safeway get off my porch I'm closing the door I'm in bed why are you at my door at 12 a.m knocking asking me for bread what a weird request that would be my response to you sorry if you want to do that that's probably gonna be my response to you But what's actually going on in this passage is something that maybe in our culture doesn't initially connect. See, in the ancient Near Eastern culture, hospitality is a village's job, not a household's job. So today you might invite someone into your home, and that might be your hospitality to them. But in the ancient Near Eastern culture, it would be expected that the friend of a friend is your friend as well. And in a village, it would be expected that everyone would work together to provide for a guest what they need. And so if you have a knock at your door at 12 a.m. asking for bread, the answer should be yes. You're friends, and you'll always have a bread available because that's the most standard thing that would be in an ancient Near Eastern meal would be bread. And you say, yes, I'll provide for your guest because they've come to our village and it's our job as a village to be hospitable. So when Jesus tells this example, and the response is not yes, but it's do not bother me, my kids are in bed, get off my door, this would be absurd for the people who he's talking to to hear. They would say, wow, that's a terrible friend who would respond that way. But then this friend responds not on the basis of friendship, but on the basis of the asker's impudence, on the basis of their impudence. And if you know what that word means, you're smarter than me, because I didn't know what it meant, and I had to look it up. It means this. 
lack of sensitivity to what is proper, carelessness about the good opinion of others. Carelessness about the good opinion of others. So this person's knocking on the door at 12 a.m., and they are not obeying social convention. They're shameless. They're saying, I have this guest at my house, and they're hungry, and I need to feed them right now. Please give me some bread. They're begging, and they're just shameless about being there at 12 a.m. And their friend doesn't respond like they should on the basis of the friendship, but they say, listen, you're so shameless. You're, you're here at 12 a.m. I'll give you some bread, whatever, and then just get off my porch, and I'm going to go back to bed. Right? It's kind of a reluctant giving, but they still give the bread based off of the impudence. And here's the deal. Here's why Jesus tells this illustration. It's because he wants us to know how God doesn't respond to us. A lot of the time in the New Testament, we're going to see God compared to lesser people. Oftentimes, uh, it's used where God is, where it goes lesser to greater. So to illuminate a characteristic of God, it shows a lesser example and shows how God is that much greater than even sinners who would do something that God would do. And that's what he's doing here. So how does God respond to us if he doesn't respond to us like this man? Verse 9, and I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. God responds to us immediately on the basis of him being our father. We don't have to come before him shamelessly. We come before him in any moment, and his response to us is yes. So ask, and you will receive. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened. And he says knock because there's this man knocking at 12 a.m. If you knock on God's door asking him for things, his answer to you is yes. He says, yes, come to me. You are always welcome to bring your request to me, and I will always respond to you. Some of us in this room have been asking for the same thing for a long time from God. And you might be sitting here going, well, ask and, and you will receive. I haven't received and I've asked. I've asked faithfully and I, and I felt like I've not gotten the response I've been expecting from God. And if that's you in this room, I first of all want to say, I don't know why that is. I'm not sure. I'm not sure why you haven't received what you've asked for. And I, I just want to say that I can affirm to you who God is, that he's your father and he cares about you and that your asking is heard every time. But maybe this will clear some of it up Imagine a fourth grader comes to their parents, says, mom, dad, I see you drive to work every day. And I have friends I want to hang out with on the weekdays, and I don't want to inconvenience you. And, and I see you guys drive, and it does really good things for you to have cars. So I was wondering, could I have my own car? Would I be allowed to have my own car, mom and dad? Mom and dad are going to say, absolutely not. Absolutely not. You may not have your own car. And the reason they're saying that isn't because they dislike their child. It's not because they want what's worst for them and they want to hold out on them, but it's actually the opposite. They have what's best in mind and they have perspective to know that a fourth grader would actually do harm to themselves with a car rather than good. It might seem like a good thing to that fourth grader and they might have good motives for wanting it, but actually that's going to do harm to them and not good. And the parents have the perspective to say, you should not have a car in fourth grade. Oftentimes, we ask God for things, and we think that they're what's good for us. We think that we have our best interest in mind. But sometimes, they actually might do us harm if we were to receive them. And God has the perspective to know, this thing, I I'm, I'm keeping it from you because I'm, I'm, I'm growing you. 
I'm keeping it from you because I don't want you to actually have harm in your life. And again, I want to reiterate, I don't know why God has given you a no or a not yet. I'm not sure, but I can tell you he's your father and that he has your best in his heart. He has your best in his mind. Jesus finishes this passage by illustrating that just a little bit more. Look at verse 11. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? Okay, imagine this. A family is having a fish fry on the beach. The father just went and caught some fresh cod and brought it back, and they're frying it up, and it's this good time, and there's music playing, and they're having a wonderful meal together. And the son says, Dad, the fish is ready. Can I have one of those fish? And the dad says, just one second, son. He gets up, walks away from the fish fry, goes over to a bush. He leans down, yanks out a giant snake, walks back over to his son and says, here you go, son. Tosses the snake at him. What father would do that? The answer? Not even a terrible father would do that, right? Not even the worst father would say to his son, you can't have a fish, but I will give you a snake right? That's what Jesus is getting at here is he's giving us this absurd example of what even a bad father wouldn't do. A bad father would not give a sorry alternative for something that's as simple as food. This child's not asking for anything abundant. They're asking for food. Can I have a fish? Can I have an egg? And yet what father would give a sorry substitute? No father, not even the worst father would do something like that. And we do not have the worst father. We have a perfect father. So if even sinful fathers would give their kids what they ask for, what will our God give us? Look at verse 13. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Evil parents, sinful parents know how to give good gifts to their children. This is exemplified maybe in my own life by a gift I received in elementary school. That is the happiest I've ever been to receive something on Christmas morning. That is a sheath knife. And I had been asking for a knife for years and this was a complete surprise to me. I was so excited to receive it. And my parents are sinners. They're sinners, but they know how to give good gifts to their children as do all sinful parents. But our God is not sinful. Our God is not sinful. He's a perfect father. And if a sinful father knows how to give good gifts to their children, what does our God know how to do? He knows how to give us the best gift. And that's what Jesus says here. He says, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? What does that mean? What is that saying? The best gift God gives us is the Holy Spirit. Here's why. The Holy Spirit is the presence of God inside of us continually. It is the assurance of God's love for us and of his working in our lives, of his being with us on the worst days of our lives and the best day of our lives forever. For us to receive the Holy Spirit is for us to receive God himself. It is for us to be in his presence and be forgiven and to stand affirmed in the presence of our Father forever. So what God says is, listen, or what Jesus is saying is, God gives you himself, which is the best gift. Why would you fear asking him for something lesser? If I stole from a bank and was sent to prison and I had a lifelong prison term and you came to me while I was in prison 
and you said, hey, Jake, I'm going to pay your bail. I'm going to pay all of it, pay every last penny. And you got me out of prison, and you invited me over for dinner that evening to your house, and I'm sitting down for dinner, and I'm just still blown away that you've paid my bail. Do you think at that dinner I would fear asking you for a glass of water? Probably not. I'd probably know, listen, this person has given me so much more than a glass of water. I can ask them for a glass of water because they've paid my bail. They've gotten me out of prison. Jesus says here, listen, God has given you himself. There is no more precious gift than that. Why do you fear to ask him for food? Why do you fear to ask him for provision? Why do you fear to ask him for relationships? God, would you give me new people in my community who will bless me? Would you give me Christian brothers and sisters who will surround me and help me in this lonely season? You can ask for these things because these are the lesser things. He's given you himself. You can ask for peace in times of difficulty, in times of anxiety. And he says, ask me for the lesser gifts for I've given you everything. And I want to say for just a second, that if you're in this room and you haven't received the greatest gift, it's for you. It's for you today. He says, my Holy Spirit is available for all who ask me. If you turn from your sin and you look towards my son, I will enter you and I will never leave you nor forsake you. My spirit will be in you forever and I will forever be with you. That gift is available for you. So maybe some of us need to ask for that today. But my encouragement to us is that we get to pray to the father who gives. If there's something you need from the father, ask him. He's given you everything already. I'm going to pray to the Father who gives now, and we can close out. Father, thank you. Thank you that you do give. Thank you that that's who you are. We don't take for granted that you give us everything, that you give us yourself. And Lord, we we pray we would realize the gift that that is today, that on our worst day of our lives, where we've committed the most sin, where we've made the most mistakes there is no threat that will be abandoned. There is, no threat, there is no threat that we will no longer be loved by you, but you've given us yourself forever for the worst day of our lives and for the best day of our lives. And so I pray for anyone in this room, Lord, who feels burdened when they come to you, when they, when they feel guilty, they feel like they have a conscience that just can't bear your presence. Pray they'd be relieved by that today and realize, Lord, that you give them yourself and, and you, you call them daughter, you call them son today. So for anyone who, who has something they need to ask from the Lord, would you encourage their hearts and, and solidify the reality that you, you are a God who gives to us? We thank you, Jesus. It's in your name we ask these things. Amen.